Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. The title of my message today is, You Okay? You Okay? Um, when I was in kindergarten, I have uh, this, this one really clear memory, and it's probably the only clear memory I have of kindergarten. I don't know about you, but I don't remember a lot from that time in my life, and the older I get, the, the truer that becomes. But I have this one really clear memory of uh, coming in from recess one day, and the teachers sort of lined us all up, and we're all in line. We're waiting to like go into the school, and they, they sort of cut recess a little bit short because there are these two stray dogs that were wandering around the campus. And, um, you know, to, to other people, they may have looked like, you know, double Cujos, but like to me, they just look like nice dogs. I was like the kid who always pestered my parents for a pet and they would never, ever get a pet. And so we're all standing in line and they're reminding us again, don't touch these dogs. We have the dog catcher is coming out and he's going to take care of them. We're going to go inside. We're standing there. Well, my teacher was looking away for a minute. One of the dogs wandered kind of close. And I was just like, I don't see what the big fuss is. These dogs look so gentle and kind. And so I decided I was going to wander out of the line and pet this gentle, loving dog. And I held my hand out to pet this dog. And he was not about it. Instead, he jumped up and bit my face, latched onto my cheek and just started like trying to rip part of my face off. As you can imagine, this does not feel great. Um, so I was freaking out, right? I'm screaming. I fall on the ground. This dog that I was just like, what are you guys? I mean, this is a nice dog. Now I'm like just trying to punch the dog in the head, just trying to get it off. Finally, it unlatches and I'm just, I'm bleeding out. And all of these kids uh, who are probably scarred for life and in therapy now because of what they saw and the trauma they incurred, just watching me as I'm laying on the ground, screaming and crying, holding my face is like bleeding all over the place. They get the dogs out of there. They get all the kids inside. They call my mom and uh, she comes and gets me. And they're like, you need to take him to the, the doctor and have him look at him. And I had like all these tissues shoved on my face. And my mom was less concerned about my face and more concerned about my teeth. So she took me to the dentist. That was her move. Uh, she's like, you, you may have a jacked up face for the rest of your life, but you're going to have a gorgeous smile, son. And I still make fun of her about that to this day. And so I, a couple of days later, I come back to school and my face is like wrapped in gauze, right? Like it's, I have this sort of deal. It's like my, I have all these stitches. I can still feel where they were in the inside of my mouth. Some of you are like, why do you always have a beard? It's, I am horribly disfigured. Okay. And so you don't want to see what's going on underneath here. But um, I went to school and I don't know how they prepped these kids, but they told them something about like not embarrassing me not pointing it out, not making me feel weird. So when I come back to school with all this gauze on my head, like thinking about what I was going to say if somebody said something, I didn't need to use any of those things because nobody said anything. Literally, no one said a word. People were going out of their way not to look at me, not to talk about it. I got home the first day and I was sort of shocked. So I went back the next day and I was trying to start conversations about it. And I was making jokes about it. Still, everybody avoiding the situation completely. Um, and I had no idea why. Uh, you know, later I found out that teachers like had threatened the, the children somehow. Um, and maybe it was probably like removing chocolate milks if they said anything to me, which is a high threat back in um, kindergarten. 
but nobody said anything. And I remember looking back, being like in pain every single day, this thing healing on my face, sort of processing the weirdness and the embarrassment of it, the awkwardness of it, the horrible thing that happened to me in front of the whole school and, and the fact that there was no way to hide what had happened. And it, it was almost worse that nobody wanted to talk about it. I mean, as much as everyone thought it was going to help me, I, I think in some ways it actually hurt worse. And I wonder if you've had a situation like this in your life, not like a brutal uh, mauling or animal attack, but like if you've ever had a moment where you were going through a really rough season and nobody said anything. You know, maybe you had gone through a recent separation or a divorce. Maybe you just lost your job. Maybe uh, something horrible happened in your family. Maybe you lost someone and, 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 and nobody said anything. Like nobody wanted to mention it or bring it up or have a conversation about it. And, and you were left to wonder like why this was happening. Do they just not notice that this was going on with you? Do they not care? Are they so afraid of doing the wrong thing that they just decided not to do anything? Because I got to tell you, as someone who's gone through this, the only thing really worse than suffering is suffering alone. Like being in the midst of a really deep, dark moment and realizing that there is no one to share it with, to process it with, to examine it with. And if you've been there, you know this. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why we let people suffer alone. And I think um, a lot of these reasons are because we just don't know what to do. Um, not all of us are automatically good at reading people and knowing, like, you know, if something is off with them. We're, we're not all good at really, you know, automatically at knowing how to respond to other people's sadness. And what makes it even more difficult is that uh, deep in sadness or depression doesn't look the same in, in every single person. You know, one person's depression actually might look like somebody else's great day. I mean, if you compare my wife and I, we have sort of different floors and ceilings when it comes to life. And she's generally like way more up and energetic. And so like her on a bad day is still like way more energetic than me on a good day. And so if you don't know her, you don't really know how she's really doing because it's so personal. You know, some of us are like this. We're more energetic and outgoing. Others of us are more introspective and we're more introverted. And so to identify somebody's depressed state, it helps to know something about their natural state. And here's why we're not really great at this in our culture. That requires us to actually pay attention to people. And we are in a society in which we are sort of disconnected from one another, where we don't pay a lot of attention, where we spend a lot of time staring at our screens, our phones, our apps, and not really leaning into the people around us. Sometimes it's difficult for us to pick up on the cues people are leaving because we're not really paying that much attention. It also requires us to give up the assumption that maybe everybody else is or should be just like us. And if I wasn't doing well, I'd probably do this. And since they're not doing that, they're probably okay. Um, but again, we process deep feelings differently. I want to just revisit, before we get too deep this morning, uh, our definition of depression from the very first week. We said that essentially, if you boil it down, depression is the experience of long-term joylessness, hopelessness, misery, and inadequacy. It's sort of this paralyzing inability to imagine yourself 
your life or your situation getting any better. And this space sort of drags on and on and on. It's not just a moment. It's not just an hour window. It's not just a day, but it's an enormous stretch of time that just doesn't seem to dissipate. And, and this thing, although we, we, the, this definition is accurate, the way it plays out is very different and unique. Um, some people, when they're experiencing sadness, um, they pull away, right? They don't answer their phone, right? They, uh, other people, they go the opposite direction. They get really manic and they start busying themselves with a bunch of things so that they don't have to face what they're feeling. Some people, when they are deeply depressed, get really angry and nitpicky and, and mean. And you're just like, what is the deal? And, and it's, they're sad, right? And some of, some people we know, uh, get overly emotional about everything. Other people, it almost seems like all their emotions have just disappeared and they are completely numb. So it is a little bit nuanced to sort of locate this in somebody else. But once you start to notice that maybe something isn't quite right with someone in your orbit, what do you actually do? Because I think we all can recall situations that we've experienced or that we've known about where Maybe someone was suspicious that somebody wasn't really doing well and they didn't know what to do, so they didn't do anything. And because of what happened next, they really wish they would have. Maybe it was because that person took their life. Maybe it, they, that person actually kept on living, but they stayed in this place of suffering and sadness for years without a lifeline, feeling absolutely alone. But we've also known the other end of the spectrum, right? We've also known, um, you know, where someone who really didn't understand depression just noticed that maybe somebody in their orbit wasn't doing well. And so they inserted themselves into their life and they ended up, the way they did it ended up being like demeaning and dismissive and insulting and it added insult to injury and it almost made their depression even worse because of the way that it was handled. And so obviously we look at this stuff and we don't want to do either one of these things. And so we find ourselves often in this limbo of like, I, I, I don't want to do nothing, you know, um, and, and wish I would have, and I, I don't want to do the wrong thing. And, and so what do I do? What do I say? And we sort of feel stuck in this place without really any guidance. And that's what I hope to give you today. I want to give you some really practical insight on how to respond but first, I want to bring up and sort of walk through with you uh, an Old Testament story of a really socially awkward prophet's interactions with a, a severely depressed woman. Because I think we, when we look at this story and the way it unfolds, we find inside of it a lot of what we should and shouldn't do, um, partially because uh, he, he does both good and bad things in the midst of this story. Um, and I want to read this together with you. It's in 1 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 8. 1 Kings 17. In case you want to read along in your own Bible or just look this up later to make sure I'm not making this up. Because this is a story that, as you hear, is going to sound like I'm making it up because this is one of the most out there stories in all of the Old Testament, which is why it is one of my absolute favorites. Verse 8, it says this. The Lord said to Elijah, who is this prophet, sort of the mouthpiece of God for this time in history, he says, go and live in the village of Zarephath. I've instructed a widow there to feed you. And so he went, and as he arrived, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? And as she was going to get it, he called to her, bring me a bite of bread too. 
But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in this house. I have only a handful of flour left in a jar and a little cooking oil at the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal and then my son and I will die. So a delightful start to a strange little story here. And there's a lot of things that stand out to me in this story just at the get-go. Supposedly, right, God had already told a woman in this village that she was supposed to feed the prophet. And Elijah gets into the village and he sees a woman picking up sticks. There's no indication at all in this story that God was like, this is the woman, ask her, right? Nothing like that. It's just the first person he sees and he's like, this is probably the person that's supposed to feed me, right? And so she's busy, but he's just like, hey, would you stop what you're doing and get me a drink of water? Which some of you are just like, that's reason to yell at this guy as is, right? And then once she starts to go after the water, he's like, hey, while you're up, would you mind also getting me some bread? Don't you love it when people do that? They ask you to get up. And then once you get up, they're like, while you're up, you're like, I'm only up because you said to get up. Are your legs broken? What's wrong with you? Why can't you go do it? And when he says that, that just pushes over the edge and she snaps. She loses it and she starts yelling at him. She's like, you want me to help you? Okay, I can't even help myself. Okay, are you not aware that there's like a whole drought that's going on and that people are suffering and like finding food is really difficult at this time in history? And so my plan is that I'm gonna make a pancake, I'm gonna split it with my kid and then we are gonna die together because I'm done trying to like figure things out and make it work. My life is just too hard right now. And all this is indicating that she is like in a really dark place, right? She is depressed. She's experiencing joylessness and hopelessness and misery and inadequacy. And we don't know how long she's been in this state, but it's definitely coming to a head. But fortunately, you know, God brings Elijah there, who's this like caring, sensitive, thoughtful, compassionate man of God. And so let's see what he has to say. Verse 13, he says this, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you said, but make a little bread for me first. And then you can use whatever's left over to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. Now, let's just think about this for a second. She says, I'm going to make a pancake and kill myself. And his response is, that sounds like a great plan. You should do that. But first, make me a pancake first. How's that sound? And maybe you're like me, as you're reading this, you're like, it sounds emotionally tone deaf is what it sounds like. Why did he say it that way? This is something that like baffles me about this guy in particular. God says, go to this town and you know, a woman's gonna be there to feed you and so get fed by her. But I, he tells him what he needs to do. He doesn't tell him how to say it. And then Elijah proceeds to say the thing that God needs him to say in the worst possible way. I feel like if I would God listening, I'd be like, Elijah, are you serious? What are you doing? You didn't need to do it like that. That's the worst. Why? Why? And we don't really know. Like, I, I look at this guy and I think, like, is he trying to be dramatic? Is he trying to be sarcastic? Is he trying to be funny? Because I don't think she's taking it that way. We don't know. I don't think he's trying to be dismissive because he, he gives her some hopeful news, like, immediately after He's just, he's just awkward. And we know this because of literally every story about him in the entirety of scripture. In verse 14, it says this. It says, this is what the Lord says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain 
and the crops to grow again. So she did, as Elijah said, and they all continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left over, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. So he gives her an action plan. And as tone deaf emotionally as it may seem, it actually is a helpful thing to do, to get her eyes off of the, the perceived hopelessness of her situation by helping and serving someone else. And when she does this, God works a miracle through it. And I have no idea why in her hopeless state she actually did what he said. Part of me thinks that she just was so caught off guard by what he said to her. She's like, this guy is so weird. I'm going to see where this story goes. You know what I mean? And just sort of like followed along with it. And God does, right? Like God works this unbelievable miracle and everybody eats and everyone is saved. And then everyone just sort of moves on. Like this weird little interaction never even happened. Like she never comes back and is just like, hey, so, so, that was weird back there. Okay, I just want to apologize now that we've all eaten and I'm less hangry and I can see things a little clearer. I was being a little crazy back there, okay? And so I was taking stuff out on you and I probably shouldn't have and that's my bad. I am sorry, she doesn't do that, right? She never goes back to him and is just like, thank you for performing a miracle to save my entire family. She never does that, right? Like, and he never like brings it up to her, which means he's a better person than me. Because I feel like I would have been like, look at us now. Oh, you can eat pancake buffet. Remember when you yelled at me when we first met? You didn't even know me, okay? You didn't know what I was going to do. And you just assumed that I was a horrible person. You were mad that I said this thing and I was about to save your life. Do you have anything you want to say to me now? He doesn't do that, which is fascinating and makes, definitely makes him a godly person. They never talk about it again. And some of us grew up in environments like this, right? Where there's an emotional explosion that happens and then it sort of subsides and everyone pretends it didn't happen. No one doubles back. No one says anything. No one makes apologies. No one admits that they were wrong, that they were not themselves, that they should have done something different. It just, we just sort of skip over it. It goes on to say this. There's another story that takes place immediately afterwards. It just goes right into it. First Kings chapter 17, verse 17. It says, sometime later, after they'd all eaten, they're doing great, this woman's son became sick. Remember the one that she was like, we're going to eat a pancake and die together? This kid. He grew worse and worse, and finally he did die. And then she said to Elijah, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? Immediately blames Elijah. This is your fault, which I, seems like a bad idea to me. Like if you're going to yell at somebody, don't yell at the guy who makes free groceries appear out of thin air. That's somebody that you want on your good side. And if I'm him, I am not going to put up with this, right? I'm just like, listen, lady, remember when I literally saved you and your whole family like just a couple weeks ago? And then I like I moved in here and I've been giving your kid free counseling. And now you're yelling at me when things, I'm, I'm on your team. I'm not the bad guy here. But he doesn't do that in this situation. Why does she respond this way? I think something just to be aware of is that this is what depression does to us. Depression has a way of convincing us that everyone is against us. 
Like even the people that are there to help us, even the people that have been in the trenches with us, even the people that are actively trying to do something to make our lives and our situation better. Because depression pushes everything through this really dark, doomed filter, right? In which we just can't see the positivity in anything. And this is her pattern, right? Depression, you know, tends to come in in waves, It's cyclical in that way. There's one wave that crashes and it dissipates and another one is coming right after it. And this is sort of what she does. She runs out of food and her response is, you know what? I give up. I'm going to make a pancake and die. And then soon after her son gets sick and her pattern is to go to the one person who's ever really helped her and cared about her and say, this is your fault. Why are you doing this to me? These responses aren't logical. They're emotional. And when we are overwhelmed, we do have this tendency to turn and attack the people who are there to help us, who are actually on our side. But he doesn't freak out on her. He doesn't take it personal. In 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 19, it says, Elijah replied, give me your son. He took the child's body from her arms. He carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying, and he laid the body on his bed. And then Elijah cried out to the Lord, oh, my God. What? Why have you brought tragedy to this widow who's opened her home and caused her son to die? Which is kind of interesting, right? The ripple effect that depression has. Like she is like, she's frustrated and she's feeling low and hopeless. And so she yells at Elijah and then he takes the kid and goes upstairs and then he yells at God. And it just sort of keeps going. And yet, In this story, God miraculously brings the boy back to life. It's unbelievable. And Elijah is elated. And he brings the kid downstairs and he presents the kid to his mom. He says this in verse 23. Look, your son is alive. This is the best part of the story. And the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you're a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. And if I were him, I would be like, now you know? Seriously, lady? Now? So before, when I did a miracle that saved your whole family's life after you yelled at me, you were still wondering if I was a good person and like connected to God in some way. And then when I moved in and I've been like doing chores and helping out around the house and being kind to you every single day, you were still just like, I feel like this guy has ulterior motives and is here to like, you know, he's against me somehow. But now, like we're several miracles in, you're like, you know what? You might not be all that bad sort of tough to win over. This is what depression does to us. And I tell you this story because I think buried inside of it are, are several things that are helpful for us um, about like showing us what to and not to do when we suspect that maybe somebody around us is dealing with depression, is suffering from depression. And I, I think when we look at these things, they can, for the most part, fit into three categories. And and I think we see all three in these stories. So I want to just point them out and show you like how we see them in this story and then maybe what they might look like in our lives today. And the first thing I, I think is helpful for us to do is to ask, listen, and validate. To ask, listen, and validate. Now, technically in the Elijah story, he doesn't really ask her like how she's doing and what's going on because he doesn't really know her, right? He doesn't know her well enough to know that she's not acting like herself in this moment. But 
when he hits a nerve with her and she has this outsized response and she erupts into this rant about how she's really doing, he just listens. He doesn't interrupt. He doesn't change the story. He doesn't tell her that she shouldn't be feeling that way. And how dare she raise his voice to him or that she should just get over it or snap out of it or move on. He doesn't do that. He, he listens. And then he awkwardly tells her, yeah, go do that. So that's not the highlight. But I think that this is this really socially awkward, flawed person's way of trying to validate what she was experiencing. Like, he's weird. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting that you know, he, he doesn't try and talk her out of what she's feeling. He doesn't even try and talk her out of what she's doing. He says, okay, um, I get how you're feeling and I get what you want to do about it. Can we just do something else first? And that's actually a brilliant tactic to sort of delay what she is uh, focused on in the moment because she's not thinking clearly and get her to change gears and just do something else in this moment. It's his way of validating and not trying to talk her out of what she's doing. And, and he does it weirdly, but he's engaging with her. And he's the first person that really does this. And so she just sort of goes with it, which is interesting and weird all at the same time. And so what does this look like for us today? How do we do this with the people around us? I think sometimes it looks like taking the risk to ask somebody in our orbit how they're really doing. And I'll tell you exactly how it's going to go. You're going to be like, how are you doing? And they're like, yeah, fine, cool. And then you're going to have to double back and be like, how are you really doing? And they're going to be like, yeah, great. And, it's, and then this is what I'll tell people. I'll just be like, you were not convincing. What's really going on? And then create the space for someone to actually talk, to sit and listen, to ask follow-up questions, to actually give them space to tell you what is happening with them. You know what's not helpful? Just ignoring it. Just pretending like you don't see what you see. Like nothing is going on. Depressed people need to hear something to the effect of like, you know, I, I see that you are really hurting. And your feelings, your experiences are valid. I want you to know that this is not what you're feeling, what you're saying. It's not all your fault. And I am, I'm here for you. Like what you don't want to do is minimize it or ignore them or act like it's not a big deal or act like, like it could be fixed really easily if they would just try. Like these things are demeaning and will oftentimes make things worse. The, the second um, suggestion I would make is to help resource and encourage, to help resource and encourage. And then the Elijah story, like he does some really practical things to help and resource her, right? She's clearly struggling with some really deep, dark depression. And he doesn't start by just being like, let's deal with your feelings. He's like, it sounds like you have some practical needs that need to be solved right now. And so he works on those things first. He actually gets her food. She's freaking out about her son. She steps in to take care of her son. You know what he doesn't do is just be like, what's going on? Oh, wow. Well, not my problem. Maybe try praying about it. Good luck. And then just like walks away. He doesn't do that. And then he says things like, you know, don't be afraid. God is actually going to do something. Like your son is alive. Um, these are, I think, sincere attempts to really encourage her, although he does this in a very flawed way. And so what does this look like for us? 
I think when, when somebody's in a really dark place, one thing that is really helpful is just offering to help with really basic, specific things that they want and maybe need to do, but just don't have the ability to do in that moment. Like when you're really depressed, it, it, it sort of prevents you from being able to feel like you can do really basic stuff. And having somebody offer to do those things um, is sometimes the boost that you need. Like, you know, hey, can I help you make a doctor's appointment? Like that, I would be more than happy to, I would be more than happy to drive you there, right? Um, I would love to pick up some groceries for you, right? I would love to help you. Do you need help like cleaning up this space? I would love to help you tidy up. Um, some of these really basic things. I remember when I was in a really dark place, like I wasn't getting out much and doing much. And I had a friend who was just like, hey man, like it'd be great for you to get some sunshine and this and that. And I was asking him like, man, I just, I, I know I should, but I just feel like I can't. And he's like, well, how about when I get off work, I'll just swing by your house. And if you want to take a walk, I'll, I'm going to take a walk in your neighborhood anyway. So you can join me or not. And just the, the offering to be able to do something that I was going to have trouble doing on my own with somebody else was enormously helpful. And sometimes these things are just the basic boost that other people need. Resourcing them might involve, um, you know, uh, giving them the name of a book or a therapist or a podcast that they could lean into and listen in on. Um, and oftentimes to encourage someone may just be drawing their attention to the good that exists in their life. When you're in a really dark place, everything just feels bad and negative. Um, I wonder if you've ever had the experience where you told someone like, oh man, this is probably seems obvious and you already know this, but like one thing that I love about you, and has that person ever responded, which like, that did not seem obvious to me. Uh, a lot of times we can't see the obvious good right in front of us when we're in a dark place. We need the people around us to draw our attention to the good that actually exists in and around us because we can't see it for ourselves when we're in a dark spot. We can't see the progress that we're making because in our minds we have so much further to go and we have trouble imagining the future. And so helping people do these things actually help them move forward. What doesn't really help is feeling like you've been abandoned by the people around you, getting endless lectures of what you should do, but you feel like you can't, or being demeaned because you're not responding as quick as they want you to. And the third category that I would suggest is to be patient, gentle, and reliable. Patient, gentle, and reliable. Like when she is venting, Elijah patiently lets her say all the things that she needs to say. He doesn't interrupt her. He doesn't stop her. Um, he's not like, how dare you talk to me like that? Like, he doesn't get annoyed or yell at her for not being the way he wanted her to be or thought she should be or do the things that, like, you know, he was convinced God wanted her to do. And when she throws accusations at him, he doesn't take it personally. He understands that she's in a dark place, that she's not quite herself. When her son dies, he, um, he's heartbroken on her behalf and he tenderly responds to the situation because he wants to be one who is gentle and he reliably invests in her life again and again and again, understanding that her reluctance to trust him isn't really about him. It's about her past and her personality and the predicament that she's in in this moment. And so what does this look like for us? 
I think first and foremost, it looks like, you know, accepting and loving that person right where they're at for who they are in the moment, not expecting them to change quickly or immediately. And I'll tell you, like, when you are really in a depressed place, you think, like, I'm not worthy of love and acceptance until I get better. And it's helpful to have people in your life that are reassuring you that that is not true of your love and acceptance of them. Um, it's helpful to, to be gentle when they attack you. Let me just tell you, if you have a depressed person in your life, they will attack you. Even though you are the one that's there to help them, just like Elijah, even though that you're the one who's trying to be there for them, like they will be frustrated and channel that frustration towards you. Don't take it personally. And you're also going to need to make sure that you are doing what you need to do to fill your energy tank because it requires a lot of energy to be in the orbit of someone who is in a dark place. Um, And if there's nothing there for you to give when it's time for you to give, that's going to be a difficult situation for you to navigate. But I do want to tell you, like, keep showing up, keep reaching out, keep offering help, keep inviting them to things, even though they always say no and they never, ever come. Your patient reminders matter. Remind them that they're still important to somebody, that somebody still cares, that somebody is still interested. Now, part of the reason that I wanted to bring up this Elijah story is that he does all these things that I'm talking about, but he does them badly. He does them imperfectly and awkwardly. And the reason why I wanted to show you that is because he's supposedly the most godly person at this moment in human history, and he's kind of not doing great. And you're probably going to make a mess of this too, even when you're trying your hardest. But I will tell you this, it's better to fumble and attempt at caring for them than to disengage from or disregard them completely. Because you're you're not always going to do it right. You're not always going to say it right. Do it anyway. And when in doubt, this is a really helpful guiding principle. There's this um, moment in the book of John, chapter 15, verse 12, talking to the people of Christ about how to be there for and treat each other. And it just says this, Love each other in the same way Christ has loved you. Meaning that the first step is to get an accurate picture in your mind of how Jesus loves you. And that actually enables you to love other people well because you are focused on what love actually looks like. When you go through difficult moments and dark seasons, I hope you know that God doesn't get angry with you and roll his eyes at you and, you know, think about how immature you are and insist that you snap out of it and move on and get over it. And I think that for some of us, this is our, uh, like, idea of who God is and how God responds to us when we are not in the best of places. I think some of us have trouble showing God's love to other people that are struggling because we have trouble accepting God's love when we're struggling. Like we have this idea that like when we're in a difficult place that God is frustrated and annoyed and trying to get us to move on and we have trouble just acknowledging and embracing a God that loves us right where we are 
in the moment we're in, even if we never change. That he sees us, loves us, and accepts us. And man, if we can't embrace that for ourselves, it's really hard to give that away to somebody else. And some of us have trouble doing this because we can't even imagine what that kind of love would look or feel like because it's such a radical paradigm shift for us. So what does God's love look like? There's this letter to the early church, book of Colossians, chapter three, verse 12. And it says this, since God chose you, clothe yourself with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is what the love of God looks like in our lives, especially when we're not doing well. It looks like tenderhearted mercy and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And I think Elijah is trying to tap into this. He doesn't really do this perfectly for the widow in this story, but what these verses in the New Testament are trying to remind us is that Jesus does this perfectly for you. And because of that, you can do it imperfectly for someone else. And just like in Elijah's story, I believe that God is gonna use the way that you lean in to lead someone toward health even if it's awkward, and it probably will be, even if you're not as smooth and suave as you want to be, and you're probably not going to be, maybe even especially then, God will use you to be a lifeline in their life. Like, this is the question I want to pose to you. What if, what if your role isn't to get them out of it, but to love them through it? Sometimes this is sort of uh, the problem that we have is that we come at this subject with the wrong question. How do I quickly get them out of it? And maybe we're not getting the answer we want because we're asking the wrong question. What if your role is not to get them out of it? What if your role is to love them through it? And that takes time and care and kindness and gentleness and patience because there's only so much you can do. God is going to have to do the rest with them. And I wonder if you began to look around in your life, who around you might be showing signs of ongoing sadness and stuckness? What is it that's stopping you from asking them how they're really doing? From sitting with them and listening patiently and offering to help them in practical ways to encourage them to be patient with them and gentle with them and a reliable presence in their life. Because that makes all the difference in the world. I think of dark seasons in my story and people who leaned in in these very particular and helpful ways. And it was deeply meaningful to me it didn't snap me out of it, didn't fix everything overnight, but it left sort of these breadcrumbs of who I could trust and who I could ask for help and who I could be honest with and who was there to help me without judgment. And this is my, my heart for us as a church because I really believe that it's Jesus' heart for his church, that we be the kind of people that it is safe to not be okay around, to be in a dark space, to 
to admit that things are not going well, to sit in some heavy moments and to know that people are going to approach you by listening and caring and investing, resourcing, encouraging, patiently, gently, reliably. And you are probably going to have to show up for them way more times than it feels like you should before they finally say, okay, okay, okay. I need help. But this is who God has called us to be. And when we follow him in this way, it makes a big difference. This is what I want to pray into your life today. That God would enable you, empower you to be this kind of person. And now that you know, what will you do? Would you bow your heads across this room as we pray together? God, I thank you for the way in which you love and care for each and every one of us, um, for your passion and compassion for us. God, you know all of our lives. You know what we've been through, what we've experienced, the dark moments, the light moments. God, you can see and are not surprised by the hopelessness that some of us are sitting in the midst of right now. God, I pray that we would feel and sense your presence even in this dark space. And God, you would put people around us who will demonstrate what your love looks like to us. And God, maybe we are those people for somebody else. God, if we believe what the statistics say, we are all in proximity to people who are not in a good space. Help us to pay attention, to be aware, to notice to not be so fixated on what's going on with us or where we're going next or what's happening on our phone, to not overschedule ourselves so we have so little margin that we cannot see the pain in somebody else's eyes. God, I pray that we would sense your Holy Spirit to draw our attention to the hurt in others' lives. And God, that we would respond with gentleness and patience and kindness and humility. We would love them like you love us. And ultimately, we would lead them to you to discover healing in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.